Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 171, The Agrarians Arrive. No new patrons since a few days ago when I recorded the last episode, but for as little as $1 an episode, you can help support this podcast and just so much appreciation going out to all of you who do. Thank you all so much. So we left off at the beginning of 1898. Greece had just lost a war with the Ottomans, greatly harming their efforts to gain influence in Macedonia. But at the same time, the Bulgarian government is largely returning to the old Stambolov policy of working with the Ottomans instead of supporting the supremacists and the MRO. Those two organizations, for their part, are both struggling. The supremacists with disorganization and the MRO with fighting against increased Ottoman attention. But we'll begin with Prince Ferdinand. By now, it seems his relationship with his wife, Marie Louise, has been mostly repaired after that huge rupture caused by the conversion of Crown Prince Boris to orthodoxy. The couple's third child and first daughter, Eudoxia, was born around this time, and within a few months of that, she was pregnant once again. The the princess, the wife, not the daughter, obviously. Now, That summer, the couple traveled to St. Petersburg with the now four-year-old Boris to visit Tsar Nicholas II. This state visit was obviously an important opportunity for Ferdinand to build support in the Russian court as Russia was a key Bulgarian ally. You know, relations had been largely repaired. They finally recognized uh, Ferdinand. So it was an important relationship. Though ostensibly this whole thing was organized just so the Tsar could meet his godson Boris for the first time. Now, the visit was generally seen as quite a triumph, with Marie-Louise in particular making an excellent impression. Ferdinand's pride did create some awkwardness as the wife of a Bulgarian envoy in the city wrote on the whole meeting. This person wrote, quote, Prince Ferdinand, generally so sure of himself and inclined to be arrogant rather than amiable, appeared to me timid at the Russian court. The emperor alone showed a little sympathy towards him, but there was a note of hostility in the crowd of the grand dukes as they stood together, tall and proud against the gilded paneling of the reception rooms, scanning the newcomers with sarcastic glances. End quote. And, well, we all know how proud Ferdinand is, and no doubt this bothered him. But, in general, although relations between him and Marie-Louise seem to be better, she's still generally in quite poor health and pretty unhappy in her marriage with Ferdinand. Later that summer, she suffered yet another slight when Ferdinand invited an attractive noblewoman who he had met in Karlsbad to spend the summer with them at their palace on the Black Sea. You know, understandably something that Marie-Louise was not happy with. By the time Marie-Louise gave birth to their fourth child, a daughter named Nadezhda, in January of 1899, well, Her health could hardly take it, and Marie-Louise died of pneumonia just a day after giving birth. She was just 29 years old. Following her untimely death, Bulgarian newspapers published an account of her parting words to Ferdinand. Writing, she said, quote, I am dying, but 
I shall always be with you, and I shall watch over Bulgaria, over you and the children from up there, end quote. Her final reported words to Prince Boris were, quote, When it will be your turn to reign one day, try to be an exemplary ruler. Be kind. Always be kind. End quote. Now, all that seems rather touching. However, her Bulgarian tutor wrote of all this, quote, The accounts of the last minutes of Princess Marie Louise and the words which she apparently addressed to her husband and her children could only have been reported by Prince Ferdinand. There was a theatrical element in the description of these tragic minutes, and people were of two minds whether to believe them. All his life, whatever the occasion or circumstances, Prince Ferdinand liked to act and put on a show. Why, therefore, should one not believe malicious tongues which claim that even during these tragic days of his life, Ferdinand remained true to his nature? End quote. Well, regardless, whether you believe Ferdinand or not about his wife's final words, it was a tragic moment. Now, of course, I think giving maybe a little credence to the idea that Ferdinand exaggerated all this and made a show out of it was his wife's funeral, which, well, putting it mildly, was a regal affair. There was a massive funeral service held at the Catholic Church in central Sofia, after which her coffin was escorted, at two in the morning, by hundreds of soldiers bearing torches to a special train which then took her body to Plovdiv, where it would be laid to rest in the city's Catholic church. Now, I'm recording this Friday afternoon, and I'm actually heading to Plovdiv tomorrow, and I'm going to try to visit that church and take a photo of her grave, which I will attach to the blog post for this episode. So, you can check that out. So now, Prince Ferdinand has four children, two older boys and two younger girls, and he's single again. But, well, before we go on about that, we've jumped ahead a little bit, so... Let's talk about what else was happening during 1898. Honestly, it's a pretty quiet year otherwise. Some associations are founded, some congresses are held, the usual late 19th century fair. But, well, no big surprise, the big stuff was happening in Macedonia. All the way back in 1897, the Bulgarian government had sent commercial agents to three cities in Macedonia. Among their goals was not commercial agent stuff, but actually to convince the MRO to work with the Bulgarian government. The supremacists, for their part, were relatively easy to control because well, they were in shambles and, you know, closer to the Bulgarian military and therefore the Bulgarian government. And, well, Stoilov, knowing he could under, uh, kind of control the supremacists, now wanted to make sure he could also get the MRO in line as he tried to craft his Macedonia policy. Although those commercial agents were very competent, they could fulfill their mission, it turned out that they were wrong and it was not very successful at all. Now, as we know, the MRO was pretty ideological, placing that ideology far above practicality in many things, so no surprise, convincing them to kind of put themselves under some level of supervision or cooperation from Sofia was never going to be an easy proposition. By early 1898, Stoilov decided to now use these agents to just spy on the MRO. So if they weren't going to listen to him, at least he would know what they were doing. A few months later, Stoilov actually met with Dom Gruev, who you'll recall is one of the founders of the MRO, and promised the organization some material assistance, but, well, it never really happened. Over the course of 1898, though, the MRO became more and more frustrated with Stoilov and his government, 
as the Bulgarian prime minister failed to decide on a clear policy vis-a-vis Macedonia and failed to come through on promises made to the MRO. Now, Stolov did want to improve relations with the MRO to exert greater control in Macedonia, but he faced a separate challenge. Because, remember, the MRO and the Bulgarian exarchate hate each other. And, well, if Stolov is going to kind of get closer to the MRO, he's going to make the Bulgarian exarchate mad, and that's just going to be a big political headache for him, so he's got to kind of navigate how he wants to handle that. Well, in October of that year, though, Stolov did send 10,000 leva to the MRO in an attempt to kind of mend relations. It was also, to be honest, a way to try to discourage the MRO from kidnapping and ransoming people because that had become one of the main ways it paid its bills. And, well, as we know, Bulgaria was still a pretty violent place with uh, occasional murders and kidnappings and bandits on the roads and things, and the MRO wasn't helping. So it was hoped that kind of donating this money would both ingratiate the Bulgarian government in the MRO and help the MRO maybe behave a little better. Now, for their part, the leadership of the MRO debated whether or not to reject the money because they didn't want to be beholden to Sofia. But in the end, their need for money won out and they accepted. But to be honest, they still had few warm feelings for Stoilov at this point. Meanwhile, the supremacists were continuing to flounder. Their president failed to win re-election at their fifth Congress, and in general, the committee failed to resolve a whole slew of internal disagreements. One observer noted of the chaotic Congress that, quote, the Supreme Committee is falling apart, end quote. Now, in light of this, many MRO leaders wanted to take advantage of supremacist weakness by convincing its members to join them. Ultimately, though, the MRO decided that if the supremacists completely fell apart, that their organization, for all its problems, would also fall apart. And, well, basically, The MRO felt that the supremacist structure in Bulgaria was more useful if it was co-opted, and so they decided to try and install a pro-MRO person at the head of the Supreme Committee. Right, it's like imagine your your friend has a, a house that's kind of a mess and you want it, and you think, okay, I could tear it down and build a new house, but that's going to be a pain, so why don't I fix what's already there? That's their thinking, right? The supremacists, for all their many, many, many disorganization problems, They still have membership, they still have some structures in place, and they're more based in Bulgaria while the MRO is more based in Macedonia. So, yeah, they don't want to just throw all that out. But, I mean, the idea of installing a person to head the Supreme Committee who's pro-MRO sounds great, but finding the right person for the job, that's tricky. Well, that is until they came to the perfect candidate one Lieutenant Boris Serafov. Now, you'll recall that Serafov was a close friend of Kotsedelchev and other prominent MRO members. Great, he's close to the MRO. But he was also an officer in the Bulgarian army, which was kind of the supremacist base of support and obviously meant he was a bit closer to the Bulgarian government because, well, he worked for them. So, he was in in many ways kind of an ideal candidate to bring the two together. And I still think it's cool that he's my wife's great-great-uncle. Just interesting to me. But, anyways. At the 6th Congress of the Supremacists, Serafov was successfully elected as its, new, as its new president. There was even talk of actually formally joining the Supremacists with the MRO, though they ultimately decided against it. But, 
the supremacists did now agree to collaborate with the MRO more closely. Now, the MRO and the supremacists were finally, I mean, kind of more or less united. I mean, the MRO representatives in Sofia, including Gotha Delchev, now attended supremacist meetings, and Serafov was dedicated to ensuring both organizations worked together towards the cause of Macedonian freedom. So, all that is to say, MRO and the supremacists are still technically separate organizations, but they are pretty much now working together, and the head of one is, you know, keeping tabs with the other, and so, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, you, revolutionary movements are revolutionary movements. Even when they agree to work together, they can be difficult to work with, let's say. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But while the Macedonian movements were finally seemingly making real progress, another perennial issue was plaguing the Bulgarian government, that of railroads. Now, as we know, the Vienna to Constantinople Railroad has been completed for some years now, the one we know as the kind of Orient Express, and obviously this is the main rail line running through Bulgaria and the Balkans as a whole. Now, from this main line, the focus now that it's completed is building more and more trunk lines. That is lines that kind of you know, branch off of it like a tree and connect that main line to other places. Now, the trunk lines that ran through southern Bulgaria, i.e. the former eastern Rumelia, were owned by the Oriental Railway Company, which I'll call the ORC which charged double what the Bulgarian national carrier BDG charged to move products on its lines. This was a huge disadvantage for exporters in southern Bulgaria, because obviously their costs were just much, much higher. Now, Stoilov had tried to convince the ORC to charge the same rates as BDG, but, well, they just said no. Now, because Stoilov's parliamentary majority depended on many representatives from southern Bulgaria, representatives whose constituents were mad about this situation, it basically put a ton of pressure on Stoilov to fix this or risk losing his majority in the National Assembly. But, I mean, what were his options? In theory, he could just nationalize the line, but it was actually owned by Deutsche Bank, which, if you haven't heard, is, even at that time, one of the most powerful banks in Germany, and nationalizing a major asset of the bank would have caused a diplomatic crisis and severely harmed relations with Germany, which is not exactly something little Bulgaria can afford to do at this point. In other words, nationalization was absolutely off the table. So maybe the Bulgarian government could buy it. Again, that was unlikely. Deutsche Bank and Germany as a whole were increasingly interested in establishing a rail line connecting Berlin all the way to Baghdad, and the tracks in Romalia were useful for that end, so there didn't seem a high chance they'd be willing to sell. So, Stoilov decided that he would simply bypass it by building his own rail line parallel to that one. It seemed like a good enough idea, but, well, in the immortal words of R.J. Crampton, the parallel line was a disaster. There was not enough money to finish it, and meanwhile, Stoilov made an attempt to convince Deutsche Bank to sell the line, but again was told no. Instead, Germany and Deutsche Bank actually forced the Bulgarian government to sign an agreement pledging not to build any rail lines in southern Bulgaria which would compete with the ORC. Now, to add to this humiliation, the agreement also stipulated that the ORC would take control of the rail line connecting Burgas to Yambol. Now, 
in theory, this actually violated Bulgarian law, which said that all rail lines in the Principality of Bulgaria had to be state-owned, i.e. owned by BDG. But the ORC simply argued that, well, although they were kind of de facto united, legally speaking, Eastern Romelia was still not part of the Principality of Bulgaria, and therefore this law didn't apply. Now, to be fair, that Bulgaria did get something in this agreement. For all this, the ORC agreed to give some Bulgarian exporters better rates on its lines, but that hardly hid the fact that, quote, it was another unwelcome reminder of the imperfections of the 1886 Treaty of Bucharest and the inadequacies of the personal union which it sanctioned, end quote. In other words, yeah, technically some issues were resolved, but, I mean, just this whole situation showed how even though Bulgaria was nominally independent— still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, even its unification after all these years and after all this fighting and back and forth and, you know, all the fighting kind of with the Russian government, after all this, the unification in Bulgaria was still kind of, technically speaking, a personal union under Ferdinand and not fully legal. And so it still created all these weird problems and just, I think, constantly held Bulgaria back, made it difficult for the Bulgarian government to operate the same way any other European state would. And, well, this was all a big problem for Stoilov, let's say. Crampton went on to make the point that what made this whole debacle even worse was not just that Stoilov ultimately had to sign the somewhat humiliating agreement, but that that parallel line which he had started to build and sunk a ton of money into was all paid for with cash that was borrowed from foreign banks at very high interest rates. Rates that the very cash-strapped Bulgarian government could hardly afford to pay. So, basically, Stoilov wasted a ton of money that was borrowed at high rates to build something that ended up being useless and not even completed. So, what was Stoilov to do? Well, he needed money, and so he decided to introduce a new 10% tax in kind on the peasantry. Now, at this moment, Bulgaria's peasants were facing a lot of difficulties all at once. I mentioned recently how their lands were being subdivided into smaller and smaller, less efficient farms with each generation, how the cost of everyday consumer goods like soap and matches had been rising steadily, but also how by 1899, the peasants of Bulgaria had faced a series of consecutive bad harvests, which put them in a particularly bad situation. Not to mention the fact that, as I brought up before, the only source of credit was basically through like loan sharks that charged them exorbitant rates. And so, yeah, the Bulgarian peasantry was in a rough position. Therefore, it's not really surprising that this news of this new tax triggered waves of protest. But to make matters worse, the army was then used to violently suppress those protests, killing many peasants in the process. So, The combination of all this violence against peasant uprisings and all the money wasted on the parallel rail line, just all that together basically meant, well, Stoilov was politically dead. So he resigned as prime minister in the early days of 1899. He had held the position for just under five years, making him one of the longest serving prime ministers of his era. Now, true, Stoilov had been one of the most ardent anti-Stambolov partisans and had initially ruled with a focus on basically opposing anything his old rival had been in favor of. But over time, he'd really moderated and taken on some more reasonable policies. 
That said, though, his ultimate failure to craft a coherent policy in Macedonia, or handle the rail issue, were pretty serious marks on his tenure. He was replaced by Dmitry Grekov, a Bulgarian from Bessarabia who had served in the original Constitutional Assembly and had even been among the men selected by Stefan Stambolov to run around Europe to look for a new monarch. Now, this shift to the new prime minister, to Grekov, also marked the end of the Conservative People's Party's time in power and the return of the liberals, specifically the supporters of Radoslavov, who Grekov represented. But aside from leading to the resignation of Stoilov, the combination of difficult conditions and their violent suppression led the peasants to greater action, finally creating the Agrarian Union to specifically advocate for the peasantry. Now, the peasants had previously largely supported the liberals, so this is going to be kind of implicitly an attack on the liberals because it's drawing their support away. Now, by this time, people all over Bulgaria had established hundreds of different peasant associations over the last couple of years, but the goal was really to take all those little disparate local organizations and craft them into something on the national level that was more substantial and, well, powerful. Now, the main figure behind this movement was Tsanko Tserkovsky, a man from Bialacerkva who was just shy of 30 years old. He was a writer, although his writing more or less focused on the lies and the difficulties of Bulgaria's peasants. So, you know, a writer, but still a writer about peasantry. And he was very influenced by socialism, as well as the kind of populist movement currently going on in Russia. That said, John D. Bell's book, Peasants and Power, describes how, quote, the Bulgarian Agrarian Union was not created by any one man or group. Rather, it came about through a coalescence of local movements inspired by men who shared no common ideology, program, or purpose, save the belief that organization would benefit the peasantry. End quote. He goes on to note that these initial founders were even themselves divided over whether this new organization should be involved in politics at all. This was in particular because Tserkovsky was a member of the Bulgarian Workers' Social Democratic Party, which was basically the earlier version of a communist party. And so, yeah, obviously he was a part of that political group and didn't want this new organization he was creating to compete with them. Now, a quick side note, Tserkovsky faced this awkward problem that many agrarians and Marxists grappled with in this era and frankly will grapple with for decades to come. Now, to simplify something very complex, Marxism views the kind of inevitable progression of human history as going from kind of agrarian and feudal societies through to industrial societies, and eventually those industrial societies would evolve into communist societies. Again, it's a very, very, very simple version of it. In other words, moving towards the ultimate goal of kind of full communism requires industrialization. So the question is, if you have an overwhelmingly agrarian society like well, in this time, Bulgaria or, say, Russia, what does that mean? Do you have to go through that industrialization step, or can you skip that part? Well, various people have their own answers to this question, but considering communist governments will eventually arise out of almost entirely agrarian societies and not industrialized ones, as Marx originally envisioned, let's just say this is going to be a major question for decades to come. In addition, the question of what should the relationship between the agrarians and the Marxists be? 
let's just say that's also going to be a very big question for many, many decades to come. Anyways, back to the agrarians themselves. Now, they knew Bulgaria was about to have elections, and so they decided ultimately that they would form a political party. Its platform was lower taxes, shorter mandatory military service, free medical care, expanded access to free education, and a limit to the size of the government, as well as generally better administration of justice. Now, you may notice that this program contains elements that you might recognize from a few different parts of the political spectrum. And frankly, this is going to be a common theme of agrarian movements, not just in Bulgaria, but throughout Europe. They often fail to fit neatly into the traditional political left-right spectrum that we know, and thus they can often kind of confound outside observers, attempting to categorize them, and also, let's say, make political scientists or even politicians in the states, let's, let's say makes it difficult for them to figure out how to outperform the agrarians, because they just tend to kind of yeah, they draw from a unique segment of the population and they affect other parties by taking away support in unique ways. And so, yeah, they, they, they can just be a lot of different things and it's hard to fit them into one thing. But the one kind of consistent aspect of them is that they generally have very pro-peasant platforms. Shocking. But besides all this, you know, the, so the agrarian meeting, this initial meeting, they decide to form a political party and, you know, they agree on its platform and a few other things, but they also decide to call for a proper Congress with many, many more participants in December. But at first it was time for those elections. Now the elections of 1899 were some of the most, most violent Bulgaria had seen at, up to this point, but also had record voter turnout of nearly 50%. Now the liberal party represented by now Prime Minister Grekov, won about 40%. And other liberal parties of various kinds won an additional 32%. So as a whole, liberal parties won 72%, a very strong showing. The Conservative People's Party, which Stoilov had run for years up to this point, managed just 12%. So a pretty bad showing for the recently ruling party. And just for reference, the previously mentioned Bulgarian Workers Social Democratic Party won 3.5%, and the newly established Bulgarian Agrarian National Union won about 1%. And that may show it may seem like a pretty bad showing for the new Agrarian Peasants Party, but keep in mind they had only existed for like a month, and you know, it's not like news travels incredibly fast at this point, particularly to smaller villages and peasants. And also uh, the main leader of the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union had been conscripted into the army specifically to prevent him from actively campaigning for the party. So yeah, there were some dirty tricks involved, let's say. But for now, the liberals are firmly in control of Bulgarian politics. But while they're no doubt feeling pretty good about their standing at this moment, let's just say the monarch was feeling less good about things. Ferdinand, at this point, was deeply frustrated. Around the time of those 1899 elections, he actually wrote, quote, Things are going badly here. No government to speak of. A virulently anti-dynastic opposition. No money. My statesman? X, a mollusk. Y, infamous. Z, beneath contempt. Are we going towards an even darker future? End quote. So, yeah, that, that gives you some idea of Ferdinand's headspace at this point, right? 
He is just in despair. Obviously, he preferred probably Stoilov and the conservatives. So now he has a new government. He's not sure how he's going to kind of control them. He feels like they're all over the place. He doesn't like the politicians. He's just not in a good place. And, well, here's why. You'll recall that Ferdinand was largely in charge of Bulgaria's foreign policy. And, well, he felt that at this point, he almost had no room to maneuver because Bulgaria's two kind of main friends, antagonists, you know, it varies, Russia and Austria-Hungary, had decided to bury the hatchet and, well, basically agreed that both of them would not advocate for any changes in the Balkans because both states wanted to focus elsewhere. Russia on the Far East and Austria-Hungary had internal things to worry about. So, with those two states, you know, on friendly terms with each other and both agreeing to enforce the status quo in the Balkans, Ferdinand doesn't have a lot of room for maneuver. Now, in recent years, Ferdinand and Stoilov had maintained a more pro-Russian policy, basically ever since the Austrians got incredibly mad that Crown Prince Boris converted to orthodoxy. But that was now up in the air because the liberals that just took over, Krakow, they're more pro-Austro-Hungarian. So it seemed that maybe there was a chance to mend relations with Vienna after the Boris incident, but things are a little up in the air, as I said. But, well, to get ahead of it, relations did quickly improve with Vienna after Grakov became prime minister, which, of course, annoyed Russia, even though Russia and Vienna are ostensibly on good terms. But, you know, Russia's always looking for reasons to get annoyed with Bulgaria. Still, despite that, There were some rumblings in Vienna, some worries, because rumors were about that Ferdinand, again now single, wanted to perhaps marry a Russian Grand Duchess. Now, Ferdinand was always more comfortable in political games and power struggles. Again, that's why he was so frustrated and annoyed that Russia and Austria wanted the Balkans to stay as they were. So he was actually pretty happy now that things were starting to get fluid again. While Ferdinand was trying to kind of find his political footing in this new environment, the new liberal government was facing its own challenges. Now remember, Grekov's liberals, the former Radoslavov ones, right, they were the biggest party, but they still only had 40%, so they needed a coalition with one of the other liberal parties in order to govern. Well, fighting broke out between them, the liberals, and the people's liberals, in other words, between the Radoslavov liberals and the Stambolov liberals. And all that is to say, the, the coalition broke apart, the cabinet failed, and Prime Minister Grekov was ousted from office after just nine months. Now, none of my sources are extremely clear on what happens next, but what I can tell, it seems like a new coalition was formed between the liberals and the progressive liberal party, i.e. between the Radoslavov liberals and those of Tsankov. And as a result, Todor Ivanchov became Bulgaria's 11th prime minister. He was yet another graduate of Robert College in Constantinople. He was an economist by education, and he had actually served as minister of education in the past. So, pretty well qualified. Well, besides all that, finishing up the year and the century, the agrarians held their first proper congress in Pleven that December. The first two days were taken up by people reading papers and giving lectures on various issues facing the Bulgarian peasant, including like, you know, techniques for growing different crops and such. Exciting stuff, I'm sure it was riveting. But on the third day, that was the day for politics. Now, 
Interestingly enough, Yanko Sokozov, who was a major figure in the early kind of socialist movement in Bulgaria, as well as a large delegation of those early socialists, also attended this uh, this Congress and tried to kind of co-opt the agrarians and have them join the socialists to form a kind of broad coalition. But this failed. Now, Bell attributes this failure to the fact that most peasants in Bulgaria associated socialism with the banning of private property. And, well, for all the ways in which peasants can be very progressive in their desire for things like free universal health care, they tend to be very, very conservatively attached to the idea of private property. So the idea of a coalition between industrial workers represented by the socialists, of which there are almost none in Bulgaria, and the peasants represented by the agrarians, well, is basically dead on arrival. Otherwise, the Congress uh, did a couple things. They adopted a charter for the organization, they changed the name of their village-level unit to the Druzhba, and they sent a resolution to the Bulgarian National Assembly. This resolution said, quote, The first agrarian congress, realizing that the economic situation of the Bulgarian peasant is worse than intolerable, and that the principal causes of the situation are, one, the bad tax system, by which not only the income of the peasant is taken, but his capital as well, Two, the absence of easily available cheap credit that could eliminate the existing scarcity of capital for agricultural production and godless usury at the same time. And three, the abundance of well-ordered professional education that could raise the productivity of agricultural labor, end quote. Now, it goes on to propose solving these problems, but you get the idea of, you know, basically what the agrarian party was mad about. All this to say, the stage was now set for that new 10% tax in kind, which I mentioned before, to finally come into force, which was about to do, and the country's peasants were organized as never before. So, well, I think it's hardly a spoiler alert to say that this is going to result in some violence. Well, to round out the year, though, I'll mention that 1899 also saw the adoption of the first official spelling system for the Bulgarian language. A note that we're still decades away from the language reforms that will give us modern Bulgarian spelling, the kind we use right now. So at this point, for example, all masculine words in Bulgarian still end in a kind of silent uh letter, which still blows my mind that that was ever the case. And if you ever look at an old text or an old building uh, or in a book or something, and you see that silent uh at the end of every masculine letter, you'll know that this was from before the language reforms. But anyways... That is actually it for today. So, Bulgaria's princess has died, and Ferdinand is struggling to both be a father to his four children and kind of manage their upbringing, and to find places to maneuver between Russia and Austria-Hungary. The two major Macedonian organizations have effectively joined together under the leadership of the MRO, and the five years of post-Stambolov conservative government has come to an end and a new agrarian organization has burst onto the scene, promising to empower the peasants to fight for their needs as never before. And with that, the 19th century is over. It was a century which began with Bulgaria barely having any prospect of gaining its freedom from the Ottomans as the Napoleonic Wars raged around Europe. Now, Bulgaria is nominally independent. Its democracy is flawed, but making progress. And in general, it's a young country, with an ancient history struggling to make a set place for itself in a difficult world. Next time, we'll see what the new century has in store for Bulgaria.
This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, check out the link in the description for more information about this episode, images, timelines, major characters, all that good stuff. And I'll see you next time.